Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5050 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5050. Enjoy! Nearly 48 hours after we last saw Donald Trump in the flesh, or heard his voice, tonight we got the first proof of life. A short time ago, he posted a video on Twitter where he, and not his doctors, gave an update on his status. Trump made a pitch for the experimental antibody cocktail Regeneron that he received while hospitalized at Walter Reed. I want everybody to be given the same treatment as your president because I feel great. I feel like perfect. So I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. This was a blessing in disguise. I don't think he understands the meaning of blessing. Uh, He'd been absent from public view since this Mussolini moment at the White House on Monday at this very hour. And in his little video, he made no mention of the steroid treatment that he'd also received. And this afternoon, the infected and contagious president took his profligate handling of his own personal coronavirus outbreak to new depths, breaking quarantine and heading from the residence to the Oval Office. A Marine stationed outside the entrance of the West Wing signaled that Trump was inside. A senior administration official said he did not walk through the building, but he still somehow got there. Meanwhile, there are more questions than answers about Trump's condition. The Daily Beast reports that on the same day last week that Trump acknowledged contracting the coronavirus, the White House quietly informed a veterans group that there was a COVID-19 risk stemming from a September 27th event honoring the families of fallen U.S. service members, according to the head of the charity behind the event. Outreach following the event shown here would have been the first acknowledgement to visitors of the virus, raising questions about whether there were any COVID positive people in attendance, even as the White House itself remains a hotspot. 18 people tied to the White House or to the campaign have tested positive so far, with top aide Stephen Miller, the most recent addition to the list. And today, the White House told staff that, quote, all contact tracing was completed for positive COVID-19 cases identified at the White House. While Trump was behind closed doors today, we did hear from his Twitter account, which unleashed a deluge of erratic tweets, more than 50 in the early morning hours alone. But as we know, Trump is not the only one who runs his Twitter feed. So is he even sending them out? I don't know. Meanwhile, Trump has yet to show any empathy, none, for people who don't have the resources that he has. In a series of tweets last night, he abruptly called off talks with Capitol Hill on a coronavirus relief package. 
then demanded that Congress approve the relief anyway and said he'd approve the funding for some industries hours later. Now, you would think that Trump would recognize his last political lifeline as this rollicking disaster goes down the drain, especially after another round of polls today show him losing badly to Joe Biden. And after he took another direct hit from a federal court, which declined to block a subpoena for his tax returns. Today, Speaker Nancy Pelosi stated the obvious. Well, it's hard to see any uh, clear, sane path on anything that he's doing. But the fact is, is that he saw the political downside of his statement of walking away from the negotiations. All he has ever wanted in the negotiation was to send out a check with his name printed on it. Is it time to pick up the phone? Do you want to go over to the White House? What's the best way to work this out now? I wouldn't go anywhere near the White House. It's one of the most dangerous places (laughs) uh, in the country. Despite that, we're still seeing egregious behavior coming from this White House. Just take a look at this group of young staffers congregated at lunchtime, mostly without masks, at the executive office building. So much for lessons learned. Joining me now, Olivia Troy, former top aide to Vice President Mike Pence. Dr. Nahid Badilia, medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit at the Boston University School of Medicine. And Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University. Where to respond, where to respond, where to respond. Uh, Donald Trump said it was a blessing that he uh, caught COVID. Here's Joe Biden's response. You ready to go to work? I'm so ready to go to work. She's Joe Biden's choice to be next in line. But who is Kamala Harris? I did not see that she was going to be an attorney general, a senator, a vice presidential nominee. Join me, Joy Reid, as I explore her life's journey from Oakland to Washington. So we sit down in the office and she's like, I'm at 6%. And I was like, well, what the f*** am I supposed to do with that? From MSNBC and Wondery, Kamala, next in line. New episodes every Monday. Subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. On Friday, October 16th, How one man saw the presidency will change how you see the world. Focus Features and MSNBC Films present The Way I See It, based on the New York Times number one bestseller. From the producer of the Academy Award-winning Free Solo and director Don Porter, this new documentary offers an unprecedented look behind the scenes at two of the most iconic presidents in American history, Barack Obama and Ronald Reagan, as seen through the eyes of renowned official White House photographer, Pete Souza. Souza was eyewitness to what it means to be the most powerful person on earth, an experience that transformed him from a photojournalist to a searing commentator and activist on the issues we face as a country today. The Way I See It is your behind-the-scenes all-access pass to the highest office in the land through the lens of a man who captured it all. Watch the television premiere of The Way I See It, commercial free, Friday, October 16th at 10 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Response? I think it's a tragedy that the president deals with COVID like it is something not to be worried about. When all the way 210,000 people have died, I think it's, I think it's a travesty. You know, Olivia Troy, um, you were an aide to Vice President Mike Pence, who's the head of the coronavirus task force. He has to defend this, whatever we're calling this, uh, this parade of of weird that's coming out of the White House uh, in tonight's debate. Can you give us some sort of an inside view as to what goes on in this White House in terms of the relationship between Donald Trump and staff? Is there anyone, you know, from what you saw, and I know you worked for Pence and not Trump directly, 
that, that could possibly talk him down, roid rage or not, into just continuing to openly spread this virus and to pretend that it is a, a blessing that he got it? Well, I certainly saw you know, task force members uh, at times, including the VP himself. I mean, I certainly saw people try and weigh in and explicitly try to get the president to cooperate in what we were trying to do in terms of the pandemic response, including, you know, wear a mask, tell people it's okay to wear a mask, recognize the severity of the virus. But Donald Trump will do what Donald Trump wants to do. And it's just a clear example of the president only caring about himself and, quite frankly, calling it a blessing is just so offensive to me and just so disrespectful to all of the lives that have been lost, not only domestically, but globally. I'm sure that those families don't consider it a blessing that they had. They saw someone suffer and eventually lost a loved one. I think that's just so embarrassing that our president would ever say that. You know, um, Dr. Bedelia, there's a lot of questions about Donald Trump. He keeps putting out these videos to try to look robust. He doesn't. There's, there's a lot of makeup on there, which somebody had to get close enough to him to put on, which is terrifying for whoever that person was. But it, it, it's not even clear what Donald Trump's health is, uh, to be honest with you. I want to play for you. This is Brian Morgenstern. He's a deputy press secretary. And he's asked a really simple question that would be really important for the American people to know. When's the last time Donald Trump actually tested negative for the coronavirus? Here he is. Why can't the White House say when he so last tested negative? They, look, we've, we've addressed this. They, they, we're, we're not asking to go back through a bunch of records and look backwards. We, what we do know is they won't tell us when he last tested negative. And I, and I want you to just explain to me the significance of that. We do know now from the reporting of The New York Times that he wasn't getting tested every day. So we know that wasn't happening. And we know he's on some sort of a steroid treatment, which, according to The New York Times, some White House staff members are wondering whether his behavior might be tied to it. Because he certainly seems amped up and saying, I feel better than I ever have in 20 years. Like this behavior is even weird for Donald Trump. And I wonder if those staff members who are concerned that maybe the, the, the steroids that could be causing mood swings and a false sense of energy and even euphoria. That's what White House aides are worried about. Is that a legitimate concern, given what he, we think he's taking? Good evening, Joy. Yes, steroids can cause confusion and they can cause in certain cases for patients who are elderly and who are admitted, which he no longer is in the hospital, but they can cause confusion, particularly in patients who are older and maybe on other medications as well. But, you know, how would you know? I, I think when you look at the White House's handling of this event of the Rose Garden and the reason why the last negative test is important is because we need to have a sense of how far reaching the impact of that Rose Garden event is, because I don't see it as one event. It is then the hundreds of following events that happened after that when a positive person that re that resulted from that Rose Garden event went on to expose others. And the and the fact that the the, the White House doesn't handle the, the contact tracing as they should, the testing around that as they should, it is a microcosm of the way that we've handled this pandemic. You know, today, the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the most reputable journals in medicines, you know, the editorial board has existed, existed for about 200 years. This journal says that the, the Trump administration has basically taken a crisis and turned it into a tragedy. And that's what it is. And then today, when he talked about this being a miracle, it's certainly not. If the White House can't even protect the president against this pandemic, what hope do we have, the rest of us have, you know, against uh, being protected against this virus by this administration? Yeah. And, and let me just read you, speaking of that, and, and people sort of 
seeing the disaster that Donald Trump may not want to see, but everyone else can see it. Uh, the former CDC director, his name is William Fagey, I think you pronounce his name. He wrote a private letter uh, to the current CDC director, Robert Redfield. And this was last month. And he wrote that this, this, this mess uh, of the coronavirus handling will go down as a colossal failure of the public health system of this country. We let the country down. You have a short window to change things. You could send a letter to all CDC employees, acknowledge the tragedy of responding poorly, apologize for what has happened and your role in acquiescing. When they fire you, this will be a multi-week story and you can hold your head high. Um, that's not what's happening, Jason. The CDC is not even being allowed to participate in this contact tracing that we think went on. We have to take their word for it. It's not clear. The fact that a, vet, that a, a group of families of fallen military troops was allowed into the White House and they said, oh, by the way, later on told them, by the way, you could have gotten infected with this deadly disease. Sorry, maybe not even sorry. It, it is a disaster, Jason, from a political point of view. It's a disaster from a political point of view, Joy. It's a disaster from an economic point of view. Uh, the fundraiser that they had in Minneapolis, now a lot of those servers and people like that have to quarantine. Uh, but, but I want people to understand, like, track and trace can work, too. That, that's why Trump doesn't want it to happen. Now, there's a story I read earlier today about, you know, the recent outbreak in New Zealand. They had track and trace so well that they traced the contact points to COVID to, like, a, a button on an elevator and a garbage can lid. Like, you can track this kind of information if you put effort into it. But Donald Trump is not going to allow anyone to do their job. He doesn't want a virus expert. You can have the CDC, Dustin Hoffman from Pandemic, and, and Brad Pitt from Zombies. It doesn't matter. You can have the best, most experienced exciting experts in the world, Donald Trump and this administration do not want the truth to come out. They do not want the public to know how irresponsible they've been and who they have hurt. And, and I, I don't want this to happen. No one wants this to happen. But in all likelihood, if we look at these numbers and we look at the percentages, someone's going to die. I mean, everybody wants to forget about how Herman Cain died at a Trump yep. rally, but some staffer, some support person is going to die because of their negligence, and they're not going to have an answer for that either. And they ha I don't think Donald Trump has mentioned Herman Cain by name, and that was one of his biggest supporters, even after no. death. His, the, the daughters are still tweeting, you know, COVID's not so bad, your father's dead. So, uh, you know, we know, the, and I'm going to go back to you, Olivia Troy, because you have worked inside this White House. We know that Donald Trump has received about $100,000 worth of treatment. He only paid $750 in taxes. So he didn't even pay for the treatment that he's getting. It's about $100,000 for the treatment he's gotten so far. Inside of the coronavirus task force, is there a single person left, other than Dr. Fauci, who is sort of missing in action, other than he occasionally turns up on CNN? We'd love to have him on the show, by the way who actually is knowledgeable enough to get us through just December, because we're still, even if Donald Trump were to lose the election, we're still stuck with him in charge until January 20th. Is there anyone left that you can recall on that task force that has the, 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 the basic competence to just get us through December? Well, I will answer this very bluntly and honestly. I think other than Dr. Fauci, I think there's Dr. Brooks, who is competent if she's willing to do it and continue to fight and not let the dynamics sway her in any way. And the other person that I would say uh, without hesitation is Dr. Hahn, who is the head of the FDA. And are, I mean that wholeheartedly. Are you surprised that but more people haven't resigned? Have, are you surprised Sorry, more people haven't quit? 
I am and I'm not, to be honest. I, I think I think for some of these people who I know personally and who I know and seen uh, have shown complete integrity, I would say that they continue to hang on because they are more scared of what would happen if they left. And I agree with that. If before we go, can we just show the picture of the young, if we can get it quickly, the, the, the young people who ate lunch at the White House today, no masks on, the culture that they're teaching these young staffers is to just DGAF this virus. And it is deadly. And it can get those young people sick and their parents sick and their grandparents sick. And this administration leader literally doesn't care. There they are. That is what those young people are learning about government, that it doesn't matter how if you get other people sick. And they're learning it from the president of the United States. Uh, Olivia Troy, thank you very much. Jason Johnson, Dr. Nahid Badilia, thank you all. All right, let's take a live look um, at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And that's the site of tonight's vice presidential debate between Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris. Our live MSNBC coverage begins at the top of the hour. Pence has the uh, difficult task of defending the indefensible as new polls show the bottom dropping out of the Trump campaign, taking Republican Senate candidates down with them. The readout continues after this. It is another disastrous day for the Trump campaign with a highly contagious and possibly roid ranging president exposing the White House and Oval Office staff to a deadly communicable virus as he feverishly tweets about ridiculous fantasies like Democrats supposedly wanting to shut down your churches or that he will suddenly save California from the very wildfires that raged under his watch. It's all a big distraction from what's looking like a total Trumpian collapse in the polls. In a new Fox News poll released just an hour ago, Joe Biden leads Trump by a 53 to 43 margin among likely voters. According to Quinnipiac polls released today, Biden is leading Florida by 11 points and by 13 points in Pennsylvania. According to polling by The New York Times, Biden is also leading in Nevada by six points and is ahead by one point in Ohio, a state that Trump won by eight points in 2016. Older voters are also seeing are also fleeing Trump per an NBC News poll showing Biden up by 27 points among seniors, a group that helped to elect Trump in the first place the first time around. Now, much has changed for older Americans in particular. It is the group that really should be very worried about coronavirus, despite Trump saying otherwise, which is why Vice President Mike Pence, who again heads Trump's coronavirus task force, faces a nearly impossible task of spinning his administration's failure to contain the pandemic in tonight's vice presidential debate against Senator Kamala Harris. Um, joining me now is former U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill and Steve Schmidt, co-founder of the Lincoln Project, and who today was personally responsible for Twitter grabbing the popcorn during an epic takedown of Trump. Uh, you know, Steve, I almost uh, just asked my producers to not book you and just I would just maybe read your entire tweet thread um, with the track of ether under it. Um, and somebody's probably going to do it. I'm waiting for Twitter to create that. But wow, that was an epic, epic tweet thread. But, you know, uh, my friend Aaron Haynes wrote a piece that for Kamala Harris, the debate is where skill meets opportunity. I feel like the opportunity, Steve, I'm going to go to you first, is that Donald Trump seems to be running the most effective possible campaign against Donald Trump. He is his worst enemy at this point. What do you make of the... I don't know what to call it, the spectacle that Donald Trump is putting on from Walter Reed to the White House. And how does that impact the campaign as a campaign veteran? 
Well, I think you have to look at it in totality, Joy, from the revelation that he paid $750 in taxes to his intimations of violence at the debate, his giving a lock and load order to the Proud Boys, that's how they took it, to his completely out of control behavior, to his total recklessness with regard to COVID, and frankly, to the insanity that we're seeing now. And that's the word for it. It's insanity. He's completely unhinged. So you look at the joyride he took around Walter Reed so he could wave to the QAnon supporters who had gathered there looking for the next code. You look at his unhinged return to the White House, his climbing the balcony out of breath in an authoritarian theater, standing on the Truman balcony, saluting to God knows who. Um, you look at his conduct and comportment today. Nobody believes this guy has a vaccine ready for the country. It's all lies. It's all falling apart. So organizationally, what we're seeing is chaos and collapse. It's all coming down. You have a Rasmussen poll that has the president down 12 points. You have Fox News poll has him down 10 points. He's losing. He's getting crushed by Joe Biden and by Senator Harris. And look, you know, Senator Harris tonight, remember one thing. She's she's debating a guy who was a spokesperson for the cigarette industry. Mm. Mike Pence cast checks to tell Americans that cigarettes were good for you. That's who this guy is. He's the biggest fraud short of Lindsey Graham and Donald Trump in American politics. Maybe he's tied with Lindsey Graham. They're about even, I suppose. But look, this is a guy who lied in his speech at the Republican convention more than any other speaker, including Trump. Uh, this is someone who will say anything. This is somebody who has failed at a level that's almost as spectacular as Trump's with his leadership of the COVID task force in this country. You know, so tonight we're going to see a competent, able, caring person in Kamala Harris take on the former cigarette spokesperson, uh, Mike Pence. And it should be a good debate because I think Kamala Harris is going to hold this guy accountable for the profound damage that he and his administration have done to the country. And Mike Pence walks out there tonight. He's only got one thing on his mind. It's 2024. Yep. He's trying to figure out how he gets on a lifeboat off the Titanic. That's what's on Mike Pence's mind tonight. Yeah, well, that didn't work out too well for the folks on the Titanic. You know, Claire, let's talk about from Kamala Harris's point of view, because Mike Pence, yeah, he is the head of the coronavirus task force. That puts a big target on him for her tonight. Uh, but Mike Pence, in addition to everything that Steve just said, is also a, a, a talk radio host. He made a living on talk radio when he was a spokesman for the cigarette industry. So it's a prosecutor versus a talk radio host. And having been a talk radio host, I mean, that is a certain skill set in communication that, by the way, is very anti-crosstalk. It's just inherently anti-crosstalk. So it's, high, it's hard to imagine him doing what Trump did, which just constantly interrupt her. He's going to have to try some other tack. So what would you expect Kamala Harris to be facing tonight from Mr. Talk Show host Donald Trump sycophant uh, and vice president? And what do you think she ought to do? Well, we've done a terrible disservice to Kamala because there has been this expectation because she is a good cross-examiner. She does very well in hearings when she's trying to get facts out that are important to the point she's making. But, you know, Pence is, is no slouch at this. Pence is going to hold his own. And the expectations game, I think, has really been unfair to Kamala. What does Kamala need to do tonight? She needs to make points to show that she has a firm grip on the policy that, that she and Joe Biden want to bring forth to the people in this country. But maybe most importantly, Joy, she's got to make people be comfortable with her. 
Um, you know, we are have two guys running for president that, let's face it, are pretty old, both of them. So there is in the back of everyone's mind, are these people ready to be president? So what Kamala has to do is make sure, more important than any point she makes or any jab she has uh, against Pence, she's got to make sure at the end of this debate, people in America go, you know what? I'm comfortable with her. Um, she would be okay uh, making big decisions in this country. That's her challenge. And she's got the skill to do it. And I, I'm hopeful that she will. You know, um, Steve, she's going to be debating a guy who's representing an administration that is the last minute scurrying to try to get the airline industry bailed out. Uh, but Donald Trump still hasn't given a real note of sympathy to the other members of the 7 million, and he's one of them, that have the coronavirus. They hosted a, an event in the White House for families of our fallen troops and then belatedly said, oh, you know what? That was actually a COVID issue. You might want to maybe get checked up. Like the, the treatment of the virus, which is Donald Trump's biggest problem, has been just bananas, just from a, just a raw political point of view. You said in one, in one of the tweets in your tweet thread, in your mini tweet thread, when you weren't uh, challenging Donald Trump's intelligence and whether his father loved him and a whole lot of other stuff people should read, that you talk to people inside the campaign, that they are panicking internally. And instead of being honest and coming out and talking to the public, they're talking to y'all at the Lincoln Project. What are you hearing in terms of the level of panic inside of Trump world? Well, you, you, it is panic, and there's a difference between panic and, and fear and stress. But no, it's panic. Um, they know that everybody's lying to them. They're, they're, they're higher-ups. They know that Trump has casual disregard from them. They all know that this is going down. Uh, you know, the Trump campaign is dark in a lot of the country. They don't have money for TV ads. You know, right before we learned he was a tax cheat, or maybe it was the moments after, it's tough to— Tough to remember all of it, but the former campaign manager was hauled off to an asylum after being tackled by the police after threatening his wife and hitting her, uh, threatening her with a firearm, tackled on the ground. He's suspected um, in, in terms of allegedly stealing $40 million of the campaign's money, right? So everyone in that campaign knows it's going down, and a lot of them are worried, right, that they're never going to get a job again, right, that they'll never work in politics again, maybe outside the Trump organization, but then no company will ever hire them. No nonprofit will ever hire them. No university will ever hire them. They, they look at some of the people that have come before them and the name Trump is going to linger around them like a stench, a shame for the, for the rest of their lives. And the days are getting short. And when we hear Donald Trump, by the way, say there won't be a peaceful transition of power, when we hear Donald Trump say, that there may be violence if he doesn't win or the election hmm. isn't legitimate. How many of these young men and women, how many of these factotum in Washington, D.C., are prepared to cross that final Rubicon with yeah. Donald Trump? They've surrendered every principle. They've done everything that he asked them. They have destroyed their reputations. They've done harm to the country. But who will cross that last line with him to try to end the American experiment, to maintain in power a president who was rejected by the popular will of the American people. There will be some of them, and, yeah. and, and have no doubt that he's yeah. going to do everything he can to try to cling to power, but yeah. there won't be an end 
a Trump coup in this country. Yeah, indeed. All right, we're going we're gonna to hold you guys right there. We're going to keep you guys uh, until the next break. Joe Scarborough, by the way, tweeted this morning that he's hearing from people inside there that God may be making the bill come due for some of the things that they've done. All right, so we're going to have you guys come back. Meanwhile, growing fears on the Republican side, as we just mentioned, and growing optimism on the Democratic side about the election. Are Democrats about to pay, I mean, are Republicans, are Republicans about to pay a huge price for happily mutating into the party of Trump? That's what we're discussing when we come back. I'm worried about the election. I think it's really volatile. Uh, I think it could go either way. I think we could have a fantastic election. The president could win by a big margin and we could win both houses of Congress. But but I also think it, it could be devastating. That was Senator Ted Cruz, who's currently in quarantine because the leader of his party is a super spreader warning the remaining members of the party of just what might be in store for them come November. It's similar to a warning Lindsey Graham issued somewhat prophetically back in May of 2016 when his spine was still apparent. He tweeted, if we nominate Trump, we will get destroyed and we will deserve it. You think? Republicans, who currently hold a majority in the Senate with 53 seats, are under siege across the country, plagued by their allegiance to Trump. There are roughly eight Republican seats that are now competitive, including the one held by Mr. Graham, whose own Senate race is now a toss up, according to the Cook Political Report. Another Senate race ripe for the picking is Arizona. Last night, Senator Martha McSally, who's trailing her Democratic challenger, Mark Kelly, was asked if she was proud of her support for this president. The question was, are you proud of your support for President Trump. I'm proud to be fighting for Arizona every single day. Is that a yes or a no for President Trump? Putting legislation on President Trump's desk. So you're proud of your support for President Trump? You look at the legislation we put on his desk, it's to cut Arizona taxes. It sounds like she is proud of her support for President Trump. I'm proud to be fighting for Arizona. It doesn't sound like she's proud of her. It sounds like she's like humming a humming a humming her support. I'm back with former Missouri Senator uh, Claire McCaskill and Trump's slayer, Steve Schmidt. Trump's slayer, Steve Schmidt. Okay, uh, but I want to go to you, Claire, because listen, you as a a, a former Democratic senator, you understand the way that sometimes it washes out, right? You know, for Democrats like yourself, Republicans like Josh Hawley, who wants to take 20 million people's health care away, but they used this mania against Obamacare on senators like you. They use that wave to try to get your seat, to try to get the seats of a lot of Democratic House members, but who could go out on principle and say, listen, if I lost my seat because I got 20 million people health care, you know, I can get another job. I'm employable. What you're seeing on the Republican side is not a principled thing they're willing to lose their seats over and not a contrast with the person who could defeat them, like a Mr. Hawley, who basically wants to eviscerate the health care of all Missourians that need it. Um, what you're seeing is, uh, I just followed Trump around like a puppy for four years. And how do you even defend it? Can you just kind of, you know, you've, you've been in the Senate. How do, you, how do you read your former colleagues at this moment? Well, if Steve is getting calls from the campaign people <laughs> saying that they are panicking, You should hear the calls I'm getting. Um, You know, there are senators that are losing it over how this man has behaved over the last four days. Uh, This is a disaster for them. Uh, If you look at the polling, I mean, pollsters are even talking about this dramatic drop in um, as they're in the field 
of between before his diagnosis and after. And then, you know, his joyride and his, you know, uh, uh, as the Lincoln Project would say, his Covita act on the balcony, <laughs> um, all of that. And, and then today, you know, trying to go into the Oval Office when, you know, somebody who's five or six years old knows you don't go back to work and jeopardize the health of people that you work with when you've been diagnosed just a few days prior. So they know this is a disaster and they know this is going to cost them the Senate. And now they're just scrambling to try to see if they can figure out a way, um, even though they're not following protocol for the Senate in terms of everyone being tested. Um, they're going to go ahead with this hearing next week, and they're going to try to distract everyone by pushing through the Supreme Court nominee. But I think this episode of how this president has not only mismanaged this crisis for millions of Americans, he also has been a walking, heavily breathing, living billboard for Democratic Senate candidates all over the country. Yeah, I worry that the Oval Office and that the Senate and all of these places are not going to be safe workspaces for um, Vice President Biden if he becomes president. He would have to come in the day after. I mean, how do you clean it enough that it would be a safe place to work? Um, just to go through it, Steve, you've got Martha McSally, who's never actually been elected to the United States Senate. She's losing. David Perdue um, is having trouble with John Ossoff. They're tied. Uh, Raphael Warnock, the Ebenezer Baptist Church pastor, is beating Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins. You've got Teresa Greenfield, who's whooping, you know, Joni Ernst right now. You've got Sarah in Iowa. You've got Susan Collins, who's always concerned and also losing. Um, you can just go on and on. Steve Bullock is looking good um, in Montana. I mean, uh, it, it just goes on and on. Tom Tillis is looking like he's in trouble in North Carolina. Uh, Jamie Harrison uh, appears to be prepared to maybe beat Lindsey Graham, who's I've even heard from, from uh, you know, Republican friends whining for money, begging for money. Uh, and Texas, you know, MJ Hager is caught up. It, 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 I, I don't understand this. And ride. don't forget Alaska. And oh, don't and forget Alaska. Alaska, exactly. <laughs> you know, I don't understand the ride or die. I mean, at a certain point, there is a certain sense of political self-preservation, Steve. And I don't understand why the people who are calling you and who are calling Claire at some point just don't cut bait. If they think they're going to lose and they're complaining about it, why don't they just leave him? Too late. They have tied themselves to the mast and they are going down with the ship. It is too late for them to uh, cut the rope, uh, to cut the tie to Donald Trump. They made their bed and they're going to lie in it. Let me let me also add uh, Mike Espy in Mississippi may be on the verge of making oh, history. That's a very close race. And you can also look at the Rish race in Idaho, which could drop late. So this is going to be an epic disaster. Um, Trumpism is about to not disappear. It'll be around for a while. It's going to take a lot of years to yep. get it back underground, but it's going to suffer its first humiliating defeat. And let this be a message to the class that's up in 2022 about mm. cooperating with the next president of the United States about getting this country back on track. But listen, here's the deal. At the end of the day, they've done a lot of bad things, all of them, as they've been silent, as they've been complicit in Donald Trump's debasements of Donald Trump's debasements of his office his desecrations of our national character, his meanness, his cruelty, his assaults on the rule of law and our institutions. But they did one thing in particular. Every one of these people, they knew that Trump was lying about how lethal COVID was. Mm. They all knew that he knew how yep. lethal it was. Every one of them knew how lethal it was. Did one of them go to the floor of the Senate and bang on their lectern and say, Mr. President, stop this. Stop this insanity. They did not. 
Did any of them go to the Resolute desk in the Oval Office and bang their hand on it and say, Mr. President, stop this madness? They did not. They did nothing. They did nothing to protect their citizens. And now all of them are looking the camera in the eye and they're looking their voters in the eye and they're saying, give me six more years. I'll be an independent voice that will have your back. Well, using the colorful colloquialisms of my native New Jersey, there's a response to that. And it begins with go and it ends with yourself. And I think a lot of voters <laughs> in a lot of these states are saying just that to these yeah. senators who have so utterly failed in their oath and have been so faithless to every conceivable concept of competency, goodness, decency are the principles they originally yeah. ran on. Amazing. Uh, what a world. What a world. What a world. Spines are in short order, uh, unfortunately, in the party of Lincoln. But the Lincoln Project is fire. Y'all should follow them on Twitter. Uh, that, uh, thank you very much, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Steve Schmidt. Uh, stay live on Twitter, man. Uh, and still ahead. I know Trump ain't enjoyed it. Y'all have to go and read that thread. It's something else. Still ahead. On a very much more serious note, a shocking, shocking new report on one of the darkest chapters of the Trump Trump presidency, the intentional separation of migrant families at the border. The readout continues after this. It hasn't been good, and the American people don't like the idea. Hey guys, Willie Geist here. This week on the Sunday Sit-Down Podcast, I get together with Ina Garten for a virtual catch-up about her latest cookbook, filming her show while at home the last few months, and a Zoom cocktail party with Ina. Get our conversation now for free wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Tremaine Lee, host of Into America, a podcast from MSNBC. Join me as we go into the roots of inequality. It's an economic injustice and a racial injustice. And then when you add health, it's a health injustice. Into what's at stake. People are going to be voting not for a person, but for stability. And into what comes next. Into America, a podcast about who we are as Americans and who we want to become. New episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Subscribe now. The idea that we're separating families. Uh, We never really intended to do that. Never intended to. Nearly 3,000 children were ripped away from their parents after crossing the southern border without documents as part of Donald Trump's zero tolerance policy in 2018. It's one of the darkest chapters of the Trump administration and, frankly, in modern American history. According to a government watchdog draft report, that was exactly the intended result, with then Attorney General Jeff Sessions quoted as saying, quote, we need to take away children. Sessions, along with other top officials in the Justice Department, are described as a, quote, driving force behind the controversial policy. The report details how the deputy attorney general at the time, Rod Rosenstein, told a group of prosecutors, quote, it did not matter how young the children were, including in two cases where the children were barely more than infants. Joining me now is Sergio Gonzalez, deputy director of Immigration Hub and a former senior policy advisor to Senator Kamala Harris. And NBC News correspondent Jacob Soboroff, he's the author of Separated Inside an American Tragedy. Um, Jacob, my friend, I'm going to go to you first. The, this report describes um, government prosecutors uh, reacting, and this is prosecutors reacting um, over to this policy with alarm, saying one government prosecutor wrote to his superiors, we have now heard of us taking breastfeeding defendant moms away from their infants. I did not believe this until I looked at the duty log. Um, We can believe it because we've been following your reporting on this, Jacob. 
What's your reaction to this report? And I will note, by the way, that Jeff Sessions is the mentor and former boss of Stephen Miller. There's no doubt, Joy, that what I saw at the time with my own eyes, uh, what Physicians for Human Rights now calls the torture of 5,500 people, according to the U.N. definition, um, was exactly what was playing out and uh, that what we were told at the time um, were lies. And they knew exactly what that they uh, what they were doing. Jeff Sessions, Rod Rosenstein uh, in particular, Rod Rosenstein, you know, I'm sorry to say a hero to many uh, in the resistance. Um, The reality of the situation is just like we saw and I reported in my book within the Department of Homeland Security, uh, just like we saw within the Department of Health and Human Services, career officials stood up and tried to stop this from happening. At the very least, they raised objections about this. Uh, and Trump appointed political officials, pushed it through. And it's the same exact story in the Department of Justice. And that's what this draft inspector general report reveals. And, and is it was it just for punishment? Did they just see this as punishment and deterrence? We'll just punish these families by taking their kids and then more people will know that that's what America does and they won't send their they won't come here. That's what this report makes crystal clear. But I don't think that that was a surprise to any of us who were there at the time. Manuel Padilla, the chief of the Border Patrol, said as much to me at the height of the policy. And Sergio, um, um, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. We are no longer part. The United States is no longer part of the U.N. Human Rights Council. The Trump administration pulled us out of it in 2018. So we're not a part of that. Uh, The U.S. is also not a part of the International Criminal Court. However, this is considered torture, um, taking breastfeeding children away from their moms, um, separating families in this way. And all I could think of when we were preparing for this segment today, talking to my producers, is whether or not these are are considered international crimes, meaning should members of this administration come up before The Hague for what they've done? Jeff Sessions, um, the the former um, DHS head, all of them. Should they be, and Donald Trump maybe? Yep. There's no question that these are human rights abuses. And I think long after Donald Trump and Mike Pence leave the White House, and that will be in November, this is going to be one of the darkest chapters in American history. The fact that small children, infants, were ripped away from their mother's arms and that these children were put in cages without their parents, with poor treatment, is something that this country and that we all are going to have to deal with and reconcile for a long time. And so to answer your question, I absolutely believe that these are crimes against humanity. And my previous boss, who's going to be on the debate stage tonight, Senator Kamala Harris, I worked with her on this issue. She routinely referred to this as a human rights abuse. Is there an international body that could even have the capability. I mean, I remember during the George W. Bush administration when there was a lot of talk of whether it should be much more difficult for Dick Cheney um, to travel in particular or other members of the administration to travel overseas because of the torture of Iraqis um, and that there was some sanction to make it real hard to travel. In your view, do you think this is something that should happen to the people who did this to these children and these parents? Yes. I believe that these people should be held to account for the atrocities that have been committed in our name against these children and their parents. Thousands of kids separated from their parents and not just separated, but again, the types of conditions that these children were placed under. This is an administration who argue that children were not entitled to toothpaste and soap in detention settings. That's something that 
we haven't seen when, when you kind of think about that, what comes to mind, right? Um, camps. Yeah. Uh, and we think back to concentration camps. And so I've often said that when we look at immigration in particular, cruelty has been the point of this administration, inflicting as much cruelty as possible on as many people as possible. Yeah, indeed. And on very particular uh, shades of people. Let's just put it that way. Uh, Sergio uh, Gonzalez, thank you very much. Jacob Soberoff, as always, thank you. And up next, a live update from the debate venue in Salt Lake City. But before this break, uh, this quick update. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who is charged with murdering George Floyd, is out of prison tonight after posting a million-dollar bond. We're back after this. In about an hour, Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris, who have both tested negative, by the way, for the coronavirus today, will face off in their first and only vice presidential debate. The candidates will sit just over 12 feet apart and plexiglass is installed in front of each candidate's desk, which Harris got mocked by Pence's team for requesting. Pence, who again is the leader of the coronavirus task force in the White House, will have to defend the administration's disastrous response. I'm joined now by NBC News White House correspondent Jeff Bennett. All right, Jeff, give us a little bit of the scene there. And how tall is this plexiglass that's supposed to protect Kamala <laughs> Harris from the, the, the member of the infected administration? <laughs> I will tell you, based on people I've been hearing from on my Twitter feed, not tall enough, Joy. Mm. How about that? I'd say about, I don't know, four, four or five feet off the ground. Uh, but look, we've been hearing from people all day how they expect Kamala Harris, Senator Harris, to prosecute the case against Mike Pence. I have to tell you, based on my conversations with Biden campaign officials, that's not really her goal. Her goal, I'm told, is not to do battle with Mike Pence. Her goal is to aim higher, to attack President Trump, to uh, prosecute the case uh, against him. And you could make the argument, and a lot of people have, that the White House, the way in which they've handled this coronavirus crisis, gives Senator Harris a mile-wide opening. And here's why. Mike Pence, as you well know, leads the White House Coronavirus Task Force. He is also a loyal and dutiful vice president. So how will he respond? How will he explain away the 7 million COVID infections in this country, the 211,000 deaths, the fact that we are now seven months into this pandemic and there's no national mask mandate, no national testing strategy, no national school reopening strategy? That is something that the Biden campaign is looking for tonight. Yeah. On the other hand, mm -hmm. the Pence campaign says that they expect what they intend to do is try to paint Senator Harris as a leftist. The theory <laughs> of the, the Trump case is that Joe Biden is an empty vessel who will be unwittingly influenced by people like Kamala Harris. And so that is what we expect uh, the vice president to, to try to do tonight. Yeah, she's about as make no mistake, the pandemic. Go ahead. What? Well, I was going to say she's about as scary as, as Cory Booker. Very quickly before I let you go. There are <laughs> yeah, ticketed guests right. there. Cory is going to come into your suburbs. Yeah, I think people want him What's to. That? He'll save your cat if your house is on fire. Um, um, there's going to be a small number of ticketed guests. That surprises me real quick. Yeah, and, and down front, I'm not sure if you can see it. There are only about 10 or 15 seats here on the bottom level. That stands in contrast to what we saw at the Ohio debate with President Trump, where, of course, the president's family, his adult children were seated in front and didn't wear masks and all of that. So it's a, it's a limited group on the floor and then some invited guests up in the balcony, Joy. Yeah, and I'm told they must wear masks and they'll be escorted out if they don't. Let's see if that happens. Uh, Jeff yep. Bennett, you're always great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being on. All right, that's tonight's readout. As an election year like no other heats up, turn to MSNBC for the context and clarity you need. For big debate nights, election night, and daily developments, the team at MSNBC will help connect the dots.
Rachel Maddow, Nicole Wallace, Joy Reid, and Brian Williams host coverage of the pivotal moments. Steve Kornacki breaks down the latest data at the big board, and the Road Warriors are embedded with the candidates as they make their final appeal to voters. The Sprint to Election Day is here. Watch on MSNBC.